Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. In our interconnected world, it is easier than ever before to connect with people and ideas outside of our context. Young people are engaging with others online and sharing their thoughts and experiences on social media. In today's digitally mediated world, what are the lived civic experiences of young people? And how can parents and educators encourage young people to learn and develop their civic identities? To discuss these topics, I'm joined by Dr. Julianne Viola, a postdoctoral research associate at the Centre for Higher Education Research and Scholarship at Imperial College London. She completed her doctorate at the Department of Education at Oxford University, where her research explored how adolescents develop their civic identities and the role of social media and technology on youth civic identity. Julianne has a particular interest in young people's civic identity development and engagement with their communities. These interests, as well as her experience as an educator and mentor for young people through organizations like the Junior State of America, shaped and motivated her work. Julianne has collaborated on a number of research projects at Harvard University, the University of California, Santa Barbara, Oxford Internet Institute, and the Education Hub, a not-for-profit organization in New Zealand. Most recently, Julianne has written a wonderful and insightful book entitled Young People's Civic Identity in the Digital Age, which we will discuss in this episode. Thank you very much, Julianne, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. To start off, let's get a bit of an understanding of your research that led to the book. So can you tell me about, the, about your research and how that developed into the ideas in the of book? Of course. I've been studying young people in civic education and engagement for over a decade. Um, and after the Arab Spring in 2011 and the subsequent use of social media for civic engagement by young people for political purposes, I became more interested in the intersection of technology and having people engage in the political world. So the research that led to uh, my book was a qualitative study wherein I conducted one-to-one interviews with about 50 young people between the ages of 14 and 17 years old. So that's before young people have reached voting age in the U.S. Um, And these are all American students. And I wanted to really gain some firsthand insight into what young people themselves think about their role in society and also the ways in which they can be civically engaged in today's digital world. And I want to note that the interviews I conducted were between 2015 and 2016 before the 2016 presidential election. And it just sort of worked out that way. I didn't intend to conduct research in advance of that election. It just sort of happened, you know, just the way the research process was going, but that's when it was. But it ended up being a really interesting time to conduct research, especially, you know, because of social media and then, you know, later on fake news and misinformation and all of that. So this was just at the start of all of that, um, which was really fascinating. And during the interviews and in subsequent conversations with participants, many of the participants revealed that no one, especially no adult, had ever asked them for their thoughts or opinions 
mm-hmm. on these topics before. And I was so surprised and, and sad to hear this. Yes, that is, that is really sad. And I definitely want to dig into that a little bit deeper, but just to say that a lot of the, the concepts and the things that you talk about in your book, I mean, although it was in the U.S., and it was in a specific time, I think really applies to a lot of different countries around the world and, mm-hmm. and to a lot of concepts that are really important to note. So that's, um, that's really interesting. But why do you think that young people feel like their voices are not being heard and that they're not being listened to? Right. So there are a few different reasons. And, you know, this trend of neglecting the voices of young people, especially, you know, even before young people reach the age of 18, which in the U.S. is the voting age, mm-hmm. um, is, you know, it's a trend in prior research. And also just young people are often dismissed by society. And in the research sense, a lot of research has focused on the older youth within voting age. So like typically the ages to what, 25 to 35. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, the research has put a spotlight on the most engaged people within that population. So they really, you know, highlight the prominent activists, for example. But Um, many young people under the age of 18 often feel they're unheard because, you know, they feel like they're too young to even have an opinion about civic and political issues. And Mm. in some cases, they're even discouraged from talking about politics, Hmm. Um, which is, you know, just really sad and really disappointing. But, you know, instead of dwelling on that, it's important to look at, you know, what young people are able to do. So I like to try and think of it in a positive way. Absolutely. And it's so important because just because the voting age is 18, it doesn't mean that at 18, suddenly people can become engaged and suddenly that they can be informed. Uh, That takes time and and a process of growing into that. So that is really, really important. So you said that the young people feel that their opinions on civic issues as they're they're not encouraged to talk about it. They're not encouraged to really participate in political debate. Do you think that this is now at a different degree than in past generations? Is there a difference, the fact that we're in such a highly digitized world and there's so much online communication? Unfortunately, this this idea or this myth that young people are not engaged and that they're too young to have opinions is nothing new. Mm-hmm. Young people have often felt excluded from the political process. And this has been documented by research that demonstrates a decline in political efficacy over time among young people, particularly among young voters, because as I mentioned, that's what research tends to focus on. But despite this, young people are still engaging in the political process, although it's in a different way than in previous generations. You know, you think about the anti-war protests in the late 1960s with the Vietnam War, and you think about just the kind of like nonviolent participation there. However, now a lot of engagement can also take place online. Mm -hmm. So for example, young people can sign petitions, they can interact with elected officials on social media, they can also access information from news alerts on their smartphones, they can read blog posts on Tumblr and on other sites to understand and kind of think about other people's opinions and then develop their own. Mm -hmm. So there are many ways that young people are engaging that are a bit different than previous generations, but there's still this kind of common myth that young people aren't engaging and they're not old enough to have an opinion when really, you know, anyone can form an opinion. You just have to, there's so many things that you can do, but, you know, to start thinking and engaging with people who have similar views to you or have different views than you, you know, talking to your parents at the dinner table, 
but those are just, you know, some ideas, but I'm, you know, happy to elaborate on some more later on. No, absolutely. And because there is a perception that young people are less active and less vocal in certain issues, even though there are some very prominent young people who are active and others that are expressing their opinions online, mm-hmm. but that, that opinion does seem to persist. So what do you think is the underlying bias contributing to the way young people feel and how they are perceived by adults? Like, where is that bias coming from? I think, you know, that's just kind of like the age old, you know, bias against young people, the feeling that, you know, older people know best because they have more experience and they're wiser and they've lived through more, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, just because you're 18 doesn't mean that your opinion has changed since the day before when you were 17, you know, on your 18th birthday, you know, the world just doesn't suddenly flip a switch and then kind of you can do whatever you you want politically. One participant in my study actually had this really insightful, but also, again, kind of depressing understanding of this, where she said, you know, when I'm 30, people who are 40 or 50 or 60 are going to look down on me and say, oh, well, you know, they're only 30. Like, they don't know because they're only 30. So at what point do people start respecting someone younger than them for the opinions that they have and the ideas that they can bring to the table? Unfortunately, we, we don't know. Right. Um, I guess that is an age-old situation. It, it really is, and it's, it's such a shame. But, you know, young people have always been socialized by their family and friends, schools, communities, and the messages that they receive from the mass media. Mm -hmm. So we almost need to have a culture shift toward understanding and listening to youth voice. Mm -hmm. And that way, young people will feel heard and accepted because they'll see that the people around them accept their views, even though they might still be developing them. But that's also something I want to comment on, which is even, you know, myself, like I am an adult woman, but I'm still developing and changing my views on things from time to time based on current events or personal experience or an experience from, you know, someone close to me or, you know, Mm -hmm. other things going on in the news and just, you know, being open and and to adapt your views over time is, you know, obviously part of growth and learning. Yes, absolutely. Having that understanding that things are ever changing. Yes. And helping them to learn because we are all learning throughout our adult life, continuously learning and possibly changing views and growing Mm -hmm. our body of knowledge that we're reflecting on. But we also need to help young people learn as well, just because they can't vote. They should be learning and learning to develop their their views and, and opinions and getting informed from all perspectives. Exactly. You know, despite you know, young people being socialized to believe that they're just kids and that they can't enact a real change um, doesn't mean that that message has to be internalized forever. There are many positive examples of young people engaging with politics through social media that can serve as, you know, an inspiration or even a rallying cry to other young people. And that's, you know, for example, Greta Thunberg and her school strike for climate. She's been doing that for, I think it's exactly two years this week. I think it will be yeah, 104 weeks. So she'll have been doing it for two years. But think about all of the, you know, awareness that she has raised and all the young people and not only young people, but, you know, some at my university would join the strikes every week outside instead of, you know, going to a meeting at noon on a Friday. That, that's where they would be participating in the climate strike. So it's pretty amazing that just a small number of people can, you know, share a way of protesting online and then, you know, it can become a global movement. 
Definitely. And can you say a little bit about the online digital aspect of it? Because as with pretty much everything, the, the digital amplifies the good, the bad, everything is being amplified. Mm-hmm. And in ser- some ways, the what you talk about as the preconception of what it is to be a teenager is also amplified online when teenagers communicate with each other and share their social lives and personal lives. Uh, and maybe that stereotype is even more amplified in adults' eyes. So how do you think digital media is amplifying the biases and also the way that young people are uh, wanting to or not wanting to engage? That's a great question. So, you know, as you mentioned, you know, it's sort of a typical teenager activity to want to be connected to friends, whether it's texting them from a smartphone or engaging in, you know, comments and picture sharing and whatnot on Instagram. I can't even keep up with all of the different apps that there are for young people to socialize with each other. But while that might be sort of amplifying this sort of typical teenager kind of view about young people, it's actually a really great way for young people to start connecting with those who might actually have different views from themselves. Certainly they'll stick to their inner social circles first, but if we can encourage young people to maybe follow somebody who has a different opinion from them on Twitter, then maybe that can be a good opportunity for them to start engaging in with different perspectives and maybe even talking about politics with their friends. You know, my guess is that with the 2020 presidential election coming up in just a few months, that young people are going to, they're going to start talking about it with each Mm. other and they're going to be using digital media. And as a way of doing that, they're going to be engaging on Twitter, absorbing the news from their online news sources. So yeah, there's lots of different opportunities with that as well as of course, you know, there are the drawbacks of of technology, which we can discuss. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a big topic for sure. So actually, you touched on how parents and educators can help young people to become informed, develop opinions, and also develop their ability to discuss their opinions with others. So can you tell me what can and should parents and schools do to help young people to develop the way that they're informing themselves and uh, and their opinions on this on this topic? Sure. So I think the sort of overarching goal would be for parents and educators and other adults in young people's lives to first just listen to what young people are saying and mm-hmm. understand you know what it what it is like to be a young person in today's world. Yes, and not to dismiss, not to dismiss what they exactly. are saying because it, it is from their perspective and their opinion and their their knowledge of life until that point. Exactly. And then, you know, it's also really important to encourage civic habits and perspective taking. What do you mean by civic habits and perspective taking? Sure. So by civic habits, I mean developing the ability to take the perspective of others, solve problems, you know, collectively as a group participating community service. And all of these things can be done at all ages. So for example, in primary school, like classroom meetings, like a morning meeting can provide opportunities for discussions and collective problem solving, even among very young children. So it's sort of like these kinds of behaviors can be encouraged from a very young age. And also, you know, young people should, 
you know, of all ages should engage in personally meaningful like civic activities at school, which include community service and doing the lunch table cleanup or, or whatever it might be, depending on kind of the, the age range and the, and the school type that the young person is a part of. And by perspective taking, I mean, you know, being able to step into the kind of metaphorical shoes of another person, particularly someone whose views are different from your own. And schools should be a space for fostering perspective taking and, you know, key to civic participation later on down the road are the skills to have discussions about political and social issues, which young people have often not had the opportunity to discuss in school. That is really, really important. And in your book, you actually, I was kind of intrigued. I never realized or thought about the fact that in terms of civic engagement, young people think about community service as civic engagement and not necessarily the discussions around different opinions and policies and and political thought. Uh, They Mm -hmm. think about it as community service, but it is so important to develop that kind of ability to discuss and express yourself, but also to be able to discuss it with people with completely different opinions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something where technology, again, has amplified our ability to only get information from the sources that agree with our own opinion. And sometimes it is more difficult to have discussions with completely opposing opinions. However, consciously, it's also a place where you could easily invite in perspectives from very, very diverse opinions that that are not your own and to, Mm -hmm. to try to see what those opinions are and why people hold them. But having those discussions is so important. Do you see that happening in schools where there young people are being taught how to listen to opposing opinions and how to discuss their thoughts with opposing opinions? Yes. So there's a scholar in the U.S., um, Diana Hess, who found that um, like civil political discussions in a classroom setting can enable better critical thinking and communication and interpersonal skills. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but the development of attitudes and knowledge for more engaged citizenship later on. So if you think about high school students, you know, or middle school students, so kind of secondary school age, when young people can engage in the discussion of the social issues and public problems um, with, you know, even classmates who might have differing opinions, it can actually help build political tolerance, which then in turn can lead to better policy decisions in the future. So discussing these controversial topics will not only help young people develop their own voice and opinion and express them to others, but can also help them as they become the leaders of tomorrow to then they'll enter government and politics and they'll actually be able to solve some of the problems Mm -hmm. rather than continuing to polarize all of the, the political process. Definitely, definitely. It is very, very important. And it's something that's hard to do. And I think it it's harder and harder for parents and schools to to facilitate that. Would you have some tips on how to encourage this type of discussion so that they're not angry discussions, they're empathetic, open-minded and curious discussions on seeing other perspectives? What would be some Mm -hmm. good ways to facilitate that? So I'm certainly no expert in this, but the best thing that you know teachers can do, actually, there are some trainings specifically for having this kind of discussion. So there, I honestly can't recall the name of the program, but I do know that it's mentioned in Diana Hess's book that mm-hmm. came out, I think it was 2015, I want to say. Okay. Um, 
but I'll give you the information so that you can link it in uh, the podcast notes. Um, but there's specific training that teachers can have that is, you know, you know, professional development for them, but also then curriculum development as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that, of course, here I am sharing all of these ideas of different ways to encourage young people to develop their own views and develop confidence in their own views and be able to take the perspectives of others. But we also really need to support educators in this because this is no easy task. And interestingly, since the 2016 presidential election in the U.S., there has been a call, especially among teachers, particularly social studies teachers um, in American high schools to have like a reinvigoration of civic education because things have just become so polarized in the United States. um, And teachers need support in doing that. So, you know, while I don't have exactly, you know, top tips of how to build empathy in the classroom and to create, you know, a safe space for having these more political, politically centered discussions, I will say that those resources do exist for teachers. Um, We have to remember that we must support educators in this as well. Absolutely. And that's a really important point is that teachers really do need resources and support in developing their skills in this area and as well as in other areas like all professionals do. Okay, so you you said civic helping to build civic habits, take perspective taking, and mm-hmm. what else would you suggest in terms of encouraging uh, young people to develop their own opinions? Sure. So I think, you know, the hardest task is then, you know, encouraging young people to develop their confidence in their own views. And I think the best way to do this, um, and I myself am an avid journaler, I have been keeping a journal since I was 12. So that's the majority of my life. But more specifically, to encourage young people to keep journals or even blogs as they engage with, you know, various news sources and political opinions, whether it's, you know, a conversation that they might have had with a friend or a Mm -hmm. parent or a teacher or something that they saw on the news. And to really reflect on those conversations and the sort of information and values that they absorbed from those conversations, or of course, you know, you know, seeing someone maybe speak on the news, or um, recently we have had the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention in America. So maybe, you know, some thoughts on what was said at those conventions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also really important to support young people in understanding credibility and bias as they, you know, watch uh, these televised events or, you know, read various news sources. And that's really important as young people develop their own political opinions and views. But pausing for reflection, so through through writing, especially, it's a really great way for young people to become comfortable and taking ownership over their views before even discussing them with others. So, you know, I would encourage teachers who are considering having these kinds of political discussions in their classrooms to simultaneously encourage young people um, their students to keep either a you know a blog like if they've got you know a private blog or maybe even one you know that the whole class can contribute to so people can kind of comment and and engage with each other's blogs and views um, that can help young people kind of reflect on the conversations that they're having in the classroom while also developing their own views. Yes, that is a really really good tip because you know, writing is such a great way of being able to kind of think through what your opinion is, and it doesn't have to Mm -hmm. be public, and certainly it doesn't have to be evaluated in any sort of way. So it doesn't have to be a school project or a school assessment, something to do for yourself and only for yourself. It's a really good way of thinking through what it is that you're thinking rather than reacting Mm -hmm. 
so important for not just young people, but for everyone really in so many different aspects of life to have that pause of reflecting and something that our busy world allows less and less time for, but that's a really Mm -hmm. important point. So what would you say to young people? How should they try to become, because it's one thing to have an opinion, but you also need to have an informed opinion. What should they do if they want to be informed and develop their opinions on, on civic engagement? What should they do? For young people to, you know, develop informed opinions, I would recommend following a, you know, a multitude of different news sources, as well as following some public figures that they find they're inspiring and positive and that they agree with, and also those who they disagree with. So Mm -hmm. while I find it really difficult, following Donald Trump on Twitter actually gives me some really interesting insight because I understand that he's not the only person who has these opinions a lot of America has these opinions as well. And a lot of the world has these opinions. It's important to recognize that different people have different opinions, but mm-hmm. more realistically, if, if young people are able to kind of have conversations with their friend groups, they can hopefully not be too polarized, even though, you know, when you're within a friend group, things become very personal and can, can be very heated at times. Yes. But it's really important because, you know, young people can help encourage each other. And I think that that's something that, you know, we we think about as educators is is peer-to-peer learning, but we don't often think about it in terms of civic education. So that's something that I I hope uh, we can continue thinking about and that I'll continue thinking about as I carry on this research. Absolutely. It's an important thing to think about how to help young people to feel comfortable at being uncomfortable. Because you said, yes, it is uncomfortable to listen to opinions that are very strongly opposed to your own or your own beliefs or what you think is an absolute truth. And it is difficult, but in so many different aspects of life, we need to become comfortable with the uncomfortable and to take Mm -hmm. it as a learning opportunity and not as a threat to understand. And even if we don't understand, but at least to know that different opinions exist and try to understand why. But that idea of becoming comfortable with the uncomfortable, I really, really like. And I think that's something that in so many aspects of learning, students need some kind of facilitation on. Mm -hmm. And because learning is not always easy. And this is one aspect in, in which it's not easy. It does lead on to some sort of practical tips that I have for kind of young people themselves, what they can do. So thinking about what I've put out there for parents and educators, but, you know, I say, oh, like we need to help young people take the perspectives of others. Well, what are some practical ways Mm -hmm. that young people can do that? And, you know, it's really difficult to put yourself in someone else's shoes. It really is, but there are so many benefits to doing so. So, you know, if in the research that I conducted, it was very obvious that many young people didn't want to talk to their friends about politics because they were afraid that if they had differing opinions, then they would no longer be friends. Mm. So this is kind of where building political tolerance starts. So, you know, have a conversation with that friend who you think might disagree with you and ask, okay, well, like, what, like, why do you think that? And really start to understand the reasons and possible experiences that your friend might have that you know are very personal to them, which is why they have this certain value and, and have therefore developed this specific political opinion. While people generally don't advertise the fact that they follow on social media 
uh, people whose opinions differ very strongly from them, social media does give everyone the option to go outside of our own communities and our mm-hmm. own friend groups and families into the wider world to yes. learn about different perspectives and backgrounds. So taking the time to sit with someone kind of in your own social circle and in your own community can be really, really helpful because you can have that deeper one-to-one conversation and really understand on a more human level why someone might have these opinions, which, you know, is very hard to do if you're just following Donald Trump on Twitter because you don't really understand why he says these things. But if you're talking with, you know, a friend or a community member, it might actually be easier to understand where someone else is coming from and help you build empathy for that person. Absolutely. No, that is very, very true. And certainly not something that is only for young people. That is, that is definitely advice that uh, everyone can really take on and, uh, definitely. and try to put into their lives. Good. And that, that's really useful. Is there anything else that you think that young people should be considering and, and doing to find their voice? So I think, you know, no matter where you are and in the process of finding your voice, you know, in a lot of ways, I still feel like I'm finding my own voice. So this is a, you know, learning is a lifelong process and learning to find your voice is a lifelong process, but it is so important that no matter where you are, if you're comfortable, you know, sharing your opinion on something or not, whatever it is that you're discussing, speak from your authentic experience. That is the absolute most important thing is to just, uh, even if you don't know why you believe something to say, you know what, like, I I really feel like it's this way. And I'm going to have a think about it. And I'll let you know, you know, after I've really thought about, you know, why I believe that fossil fuels are bad. I'll let, I'll let you know, but I I really believe this. Um, Mm -hmm. So to speak, you know, authentically and to sort of own wherever you are in that process is so important. And, you know, speaking authentically can really strike a chord with other people. So the more you you are um, in, in how you have your conversations and how you share your beliefs, um, the more empathy that other people will have uh, for you and for your experiences. And then it'll be easier for you to work together to collaborate on things that will end up maybe one day being policies for a better world. That's fantastic. No, that is really, really good. And in that process of listening to others and also expressing your authentic voice and informing yourself through different from different perspectives and different mediums is also the possibility that your opinion will change and mm-hmm. and and evolve and as you said we're always it's not that at 18 you become fully evolved in your opinion and now you can vote but that is something that evolves do you think that there's a tension possibly in in these times that people are not quite accepted for changing their opinions. There, do you think that there's a lack of understanding that opinions develop and are more fluid and that we would allow people to be able to do that? Because if we talk to different people, we expose ourselves to different ways of thinking, hopefully it's with the idea that our opinions evolve as well. Do you think that social media possibly had an impact on limiting that? I mean... I would like to think that social media can help everyone kind of get on board with the idea that we are humans are always becoming the next version of themselves. Like I, I you know, I loved uh, Michelle Obama's med- memoir where she says, you know, that she is in the constant process of becoming the next version of herself. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, not everyone really has kind of gotten on board with that or understood that, but social media, you know, you've got timestamps on when you've had certain opinions, if you know, if you're very vocal on social media, and 
share exactly what you're thinking at a given time. So it's very easy to see that you said one thing 2010, and then you're saying another thing in 2018, and then you're saying another thing in 2020, like this guy's all over the place, like what's going on. But personally, I don't have a problem with that because, you know, maybe some new information or a new life experience or current events, you know, happened in the last few years, you know, since 2018, that this person changed their opinion absolutely on X. And I, I think that social media can be a double-edged sword, as you had mentioned, like, you know, it's easy to, to see when someone has changed their opinion, but yes. we're not very forgiving about it. Exactly. Um, but if anything, I hope that, you know, because we have these sort of documentations of different beliefs and opinions that we can use that as an opportunity to, I I think it's an interesting research opportunity personally, (laughs) um, but to see what events might've sparked different changes in opinion. Yes. That's an important way to look at it because I do feel that there are times when people are criticized for having changed their opinions. And the truth is that again, exactly as that quote said, that we are always evolving and we are always becoming the next version of ourselves because life experience, new information, new events shift some of the things that we're Mm. thinking about. And it's important to recognize that and and to recognize that that's something that we should all be learning. And that's what learning is, isn't it? Mm. Learning Mm. is constantly reassessing what we know and, and believe. Is there something, I mean, obviously your book is a fantastic resource and a really great insight onto how uh, young people are experiencing their own civic identity and how they're developing, but are there any other recommendations that you would give to listeners on this topic, something that you find inspiring? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I, I mentioned Diana Hess's work um, earlier in our conversation, but I would like to mention um, her collaboration with Paula McAvoy. Uh, their book, The Political Classroom, Evidence and Ethics in Democratic Education, is a really wonderful resource for educators. Mm. Um, so if you know, you're an educator listening to this um, and you're interested in understanding you know, ways of how to have these kind of more controversial political conversations in your classroom, you know, for your students to have those conversations and develop a better perspective taking skills, I would highly recommend checking out that book. I want to add that, um, you know, while I highlighted lots of other ways that young people can get involved in the political process, you know, without voting, voting is very important. So if you are eligible to vote, please register and don't forget to vote, um, whether you're in the United States, in Canada, whichever, you know, country you're in that has, you know, democratic elections, exercise your right to vote. Thank you so much, Julianne. I I really appreciate your insights and sharing your, your research and your work with us. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for having me.